This week as we worship the Lord, uh, we're moving the sermon to an earlier spot. I noticed Archie was already asleep, so uh, I hope nobody else joins him. You know, I, to my credit, I had not started preaching yet when he was already out. Don't know if you noticed that. We moved the sermon up a little bit today because we're taking communion together in a moment. And basically the sermon this morning, I'm going to preach to you from Luke's gospel where Jesus took this last meal with his disciples. And I want to work through this text as we prepare our hearts and our minds for what our communion meal is all about. So will you turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. I'd like to pray for us and we'll begin our sermon. Father, as I hear my sisters and my brothers turning pages in their Bibles to find our place in your word, I invite your Holy Spirit, Father, to fill every word on every page. God, that you'd pierce our hearts with the love and the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Lord, that as we read your words this morning, Lord, that familiar story of Jesus in that upper room would come to life for us in a way that only your Spirit can bring it to life. And God, as a result of your ministry in us, I pray that you would relieve us of our sin and our guilt. God, that you would cleanse and restore us, that you would empower us, that you would give us hope and wisdom and strength. We ask for your grace as we study Scripture. God, please remove our critical hard spirits, our hard and stubborn hearts. And Lord, let us be submissive to you. Clay in your hands for this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, you're going to read about the last hours of the life of Jesus. And it takes me back to memory lane. Before I share this, I'll tell you a little bit about communion in Sugarlock Baptist Church. Many, many years ago, when we took communion at my home church, Sugarlock, Mississippi, we took communion with oyster crackers. Now, who in this room knows what an oyster cracker is? Does anybody know it? There you go. I mean, it's like a little round cracker, a little circle, a little small round cracker that, you, that you'd pass. You put them in soup and stuff like that. Well, for whatever reason, that was what Sugarlock Baptist Church chose to use for communion wafers. We didn't buy the little breads. or We had oyster crackers, and that's what you used. I guess if you set anything apart for the Lord, it can become holy. But that's what we used. My mom, my mom, apparently was responsible for setting up the communion. When we took, I know that for, for years and years, Gwen's done that for us. Other people volunteer and help with that. These days. But my mom was responsible for putting the communion meal together, putting the crackers out there, filling the cups with grape juice, which is trickier than you think. Those are small cups, right? So my mom did that. I remember as a kid one time, on the way home from church, I think mom had the extra crackers, or maybe it was on the way to church. I don't remember. At 47, my, my memory is a little fuzzy. But I remember sitting in the back of that car with those oyster crackers and their salty little selves smiling up at me. And I thought, you know what would be great right now? A snack. Now, we didn't have goldfish in my day, but this was close enough. So I said, hey, mom, can I have some crackers? And I start reaching for the crackers. And you would think that I had made a big mistake. My mom was very upset. You don't touch those crackers. You don't. What? They're just crackers, mom? Well, that was my first lesson that they were not just crackers. They were set apart to the Lord. That this little remembrance, as humble as it is, 
When the body of Jesus comes together to pass the grape juice and the, and the bread, we don't believe that it becomes the body of Christ as they used to in some churches years ago. But we do believe that this symbol, that what we're professing is sacred and holy. And, we're gonna guard, and it was important. So as a kid, I thought, all right, I'm paying attention. As a pastor, as a pastor, when I started preaching here in 2013, I remember, I remember families that I loved. Saying, oh, my kids really want to take communion. When we pass, when we pass the plates, when we pass the juice, my kids want to take communion. But they're not saved yet, but they feel so left out. It hurts their feelings that they take, can't take communion. And I thought to myself, oh, I really want to make those kids happy. But you know what? No, you can't take communion until you're a believer. Because it doesn't mean anything until then. I, I learned that this little ritual of bread and juice is actually pretty important to us as believers. So let's dive in to the night that it all began. Will you read with me? 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. There's two feasts. There's the the Passover meal, Nisan 14th, the Jewish day, Nisan 14th. And then for the next seven days after Passover is a festival of unleavened bread. So it's eight days, two feasts, eight days. But they wound up getting stuck together. Sometimes the Bible will just say Passover like it's an eight-day thing. Sometimes it will just say unleavened bread like it's an eight-day thing. But technically, like in Exodus where it all originates, it's 14 Nisan is Passover, one week of unleavened bread. So the festival is, is coming up. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. We know now it's 30 shekels of silver, the cost of betrayal. He consented And he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. As we start this sermon with these just first few verses in mind, I want to offer you something I never thought about much. On this last night, when Jesus was taking this last meal with his disciples, there was only one Passover meal, really. I mean, the Jews were taking it, Jesus was taking it. But as everybody was taking this one Passover meal, I need you to know, that there was one Passover meal but two plans in place. And the first one was sinful. The first one was that the high priest's plan was that we will get rid of Jesus. We will get Jesus out of the way. So as we jump off into the rest of this sermon in a few moments, we're going to see Jesus sitting at a table planning not to have to have anybody get rid of him. He's going to give his life up willingly like it's going to be his choice. The exact opposite. They're trying to kill him to get rid of him. He is choosing to die to redeem them. You could not have two plans that were more opposite. I'm sorry, I'm kind of loud. You're right. But on this night when Jesus is at that table looking at his betrayers and his disciples and saying, I am going to give myself up for you. At the very same time, high priests are gathering at their tables with a smile on their face, believing this is the last Passover that they'll have to worry about that Jesus. Judas is gathering at that table with sweaty palms, wondering if he can carry out his plan to turn Jesus in. There are two plans in place. One to get rid of Jesus 
remove the stumbling block. And the other plan, to become the sacrifice to save the world. Jesus coming to give his life for you, and all the religious leaders can think about is how to get him out of the way so they can get back to business as usual, living their lives without his interruption, without him telling the high priest and the chief priest that they're doing it wrong, without him getting all the people excited about the hope of God. They want to get rid of Jesus and get back to religion as usual. And so before I read the rest of the text, I just want to ask you, are you in a spot in your life where Jesus is the problem? Where you're, you're trying to mute his voice because you've got plans about how you can be in charge of your life, about the things that you want to do for yourself, and Jesus convicting you, Jesus reminding you through the Spirit, Jesus calling you, Jesus speaking to you through the Word. It's keeping you from being able to be in charge of your life and run after your own plans. That seems like a heavy weight. But they wanted their church back. They wanted to be in charge again. They wanted their name back. And they made a plan to get rid of Jesus. And I'm just praying that the church in our age, or that in small, subtle ways at our own dinner tables, we're not trying to find ways to turn the volume down on the voice of Jesus and get our life back. And so as we take communion meal in just a few moments, man, I, I want you to remember that you are submitting wholeheartedly, joyfully to the Lordship of Jesus. Like as we take this meal, we're declaring that we're His people. That He leads our lives in, and we joyfully accept His sacrifice. Let's look at the second plan. We'll read verse 7 and following. We'll see what happens with Jesus. By the way, these two plans, the way Luke writes his gospel... They kind of track through the rest of this narrative. Verse 7, and So then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want to prepare it, they said. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. The, the truth is that Jesus has been working behind the scenes already. He's already got a host. He's already got plans in place. In a moment, he's going to say, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you again. And you're going to see that's true because he's been working behind the scenes to make this moment. He intends this last opportunity to teach his disciples might be one of the most important ones. Verse 13. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. We read about modern Passover meals or Seder meals now. Churches even participate in them, take them sometimes. And you know, there's, there's, there's four cups and different statements and things that are read and said. We're truthfully not 100% sure what the Passover meal looked like in the day of Jesus. It's already not like what it looked like in the day of Moses. It, by Jesus' day, everybody, if you could, you were expected to take it in the city of Jerusalem. But when it started in the book of Exodus in chapters 11 and 12, you took it in your home with your family. But he's made preparations. The lamb that they picked out when they went to the temple, it's been made ready. The table is set. Space is cleared. I've read John's gospel 
So I know that there's a bowl of water by the door with which Jesus will wash the disciples' feet. Not in Luke's gospel, but in John's, you'll hear about how he is going to take on the form of a servant, not just washing their hands, but on his knees to cleanse them to wash their feet. Everything is ready. There's bread, there's a cup that Judas will dip his hand into with all the other disciples. Verse 14, so when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I wonder what the disciples thought when he said, before I suffer. Here's something I need you to know that every time we take Passover, it is an unapologetic reminder of the suffering of Jesus. It is an unapologetic reminder that Jesus died on the cross, his body broken like the bread, his blood poured out like the juice in the cup. It's a reminder that you and I are adopted into God's family. We're given the righteousness of Jesus, not because of our good works, but because Jesus paid for it by becoming a sacrifice, because Jesus had his body literally broken for us. So this is a, a way for us to remember the sufferings of Christ. He looks at the disciples and he says, I've wanted to eat this with you before I suffer. Surely they thought he was going to Jerusalem to claim his throne. I wonder if question marks are popping up in their minds, if they're saying to themselves, suffer, why are you suffering? I thought you were coming in to take your throne. I'm going to tell you the two paths in this passage, the path of Jesus where he takes a throne through a cross and a crown of thorns is entirely different than the high priest's path where you have power by strength, by might, by taking it. And you're going to be choosing those two paths yourself. Not just today, but every day of your life. Whether you do things through your flesh and for your flesh, or submission to Jesus through His power and His sacrifice. And it's not shameful if a believer suffers for Jesus. It's not shameful. I don't preach a health and wealth gospel. God blesses His children. Oh, He blesses His children. But I don't preach a health and wealth gospel up here. Because our faith was born on a cross. And every time we take the Passover meal, we, we understand that believers can and will be persecuted for Jesus. He was persecuted for us. So as you take communion meal this morning, recognize that, that that tiny little cracker, that cup of juice, it reminds you of the great love of Jesus that drove him to the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent Christ to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As you take that cup, as you take the bread this morning, please know that it is a testimony to the love of God that He was willing to be broken for you, suffer for you. Verse 16, I tell you that I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to abolish it, to do away with it. Jesus said, you know, heaven and earth would pass away before one stroke or one letter, one jot or one tittle would pass away from the law of God. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. And in John's gospel, you see that at the tabernacle feast, he is the light of the world. You see that he is the fulfillment of the feasts, the fulfillment of the law. He satisfies it, fulfills it himself. He keeps it completely. He shows us what it looks like. But here's a question. What does it mean to think that Jesus fulfills the Passover meal? Because for over a thousand years, Jewish people have been observing the Passover meal. What did it mean that he fulfills it? 
Well, you'd have to go back to the book of Exodus. When the people were in slavery for 400 years and they were crying out to God for help. When Pharaoh and his strength and flesh were casting Israelite babies into the Nile River. When God's people had no hope except their own God. And they called out to him. You'd have to go back to Exodus to see how God in his strength, he crippled the gods of Egypt with each of the ten plagues targeting one of the pagan gods that they worshipped. And he brought Egypt to its knees and showed that the gods they'd been crying out to were nothing, were empty. You'd have to go back to that night when the firstborn all over Egypt were dying. When God was momentarily bringing judgment to a sinful world. And men were getting what they deserved all along. Except in the households that had faith. Back in that moment, God had said, the death angel is going to roam all over Egypt and claim what is ours. But if you'll put faith in me, if you'll sacrifice a lamb, spotless lamb, and paint its blood on your doorposts as an act of faith that you believe me, then when the death angel comes to your house, he'll pass it right over. Passover. And he did. For over a thousand years, Jewish households had understood that a lamb was their substitute that night. For over a thousand years, they understood that they didn't have to die because a lamb stood in their place that night. For over a thousand years, Passover was a reminder of deliverance, of a God whose strong arm would rescue and save. But what no one could have ever fathomed is that a God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the second member of the Trinity would have come to be the Passover lamb. How heavy is it that as they sit in this night with one betrayer among eleven, that the Passover lamb that has come to save the entire world, even here 2,000 years later, was taking this meal that was a promise. For everybody else at the table, it was a promise that they would be free. For everybody else at the table, it was a promise they would not die a spiritual death. For everybody else at the table, it was a promise that God had made a provision, a pathway. But for one person at that table, at the one praying the prayers, speaking the blessings, giving thanks, breaking the bread, passing the cup. For Christ Jesus, it was fulfillment that that next day he would die. He would take his place as the Passover lamb. They were having the Passover meal at the table with the Passover lamb. And they were looking face to face at the God as he washed their feet, as he passed their food, at the God that would make a way for them. And every time we take this Passover meal, this last supper, this communion meal, this Lord's table, every time we take this, we remind ourselves that the God to whom we pray has come to save us. That whatever suffering you're facing, He's faced worse. That He's come to make His people. Look at verse 18. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He would not. On the cross, they would offer him gall and vinegar, but he would not sit and have a cup of wine with his friends until the kingdom came in power. Now, it's kind of cool to me that in Luke 24, a resurrected Jesus breaks bread and the disciples' eyes are opened. And as they remember this table and those hands, they recognize exactly what happened at this Passover. 
Verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. In your Bibles, if you underline in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to underline those three words, given for you. Nobody took it. Christ came to give it. You know the bread represents the body of Christ. It was broken for us. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus is very clear that he had come to freely give it. It was his choice to receive the beatings and the crucifixion. It was his choice to freely give himself to you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. For 2,000 years, they'd been taking Passover in remembrance of a lamb that died under Aaron's hand. And here, Jesus is saying, from now on, when the church takes Passover, communion, Lord's Supper, they'll do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If you underline in your Bibles, I'd underline those four words, poured out for you. This Passover meal, as Jesus took it with his disciples, he was giving his body to them, pouring out his blood for them. What more could a servant leader Messiah give or do for his people? I need you to know that in just a few minutes as you hold that tiny little little cup in your hand, take that little wafer that these days I think must be made out of styrofoam, as you take that little wafer and that little cup, I hope that you'll remember that they're, they're reminding us that the body of Jesus wasn't snatched away, taken away, pried away. He freely gave it for you. That the blood of Christ was poured out, not wasted or spilled, poured out for you. Verse 21, he says, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. That other plan comes back into place. There's a plan to get rid of Jesus. Now, I won't read the rest of the passage, but you should read it when you get home. What you'll notice if you read as you keep going, you'll notice if you read farther into the passage, that Jesus has a a debate with the disciples. While they're wondering who would betray him, who would betray him, They also start arguing at the other end of the table who's going to be the greatest. And this is where he says, don't you know that whoever wants to be the greatest must become like a child? Don't you know that whoever wants to be the greatest in my kingdom should serve? He sits at a table having washed their feet. He sits at a table giving his body, giving his blood, showing us what leadership and love and sacrifice and what the heart of God looks like. And they're arguing at the other end of the table about who will have the most status. They sound an awful lot like the high priests and the chief priests that are not looking at Jesus the way they should. They're saying, when can we be in charge again? So gang, as we come to the Lord's table, I'm laying out two paths. One is that you would take up the cross of Christ, die to yourself, joyfully take this communion meal, remembering that he, his body was broken, blood poured out for you, and you will give the rest of your life joyfully following in his footsteps. That evil will be conquered because of Jesus that your sins are cleansed and purged because of Jesus, and that you'll never lift your hand again to a works-based righteousness, trying to earn your salvation, or to a status quo strength, trying to make sure that you're in charge and your opinions rule the day. Gang, today, would you take up a cross, die to yourself, and join me at this communion table? Would you recognize that this is our confession, that every one of us came to these pews and those choir chairs not through good deeds and faithful church attendance. But we all got here the same way, through Christ Jesus who made the way. 
as you take communion, maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, gosh, I've really blown it, you know. I come to the communion table today, not in my strongest season. I've sinned, I've backslidden, I've fallen short. If that's you, then I remind you that that's what this communion table is about. Is that you are cleansed by the work of Christ. Maybe today as you take communion and evaluate, as you search your heart and your mind, as you clear your head and worship Jesus, maybe you'll be reminded by this cup and this bread that it was never your works that saved you and it is not your works that keep you. Commit yourself to the care of Christ. Remember that he cleansed you and remember that he keeps you. Brothers and sisters, here at the end of this sermon, I want to ask you to take a moment to respond. We'll have one song where you'll do your business with Jesus. Our deacons will come forward. Don't be distracted by them. They'll give you this space. Our deacons will gather by the exit doors so they can serve communion in a moment. But during this time of response, this is your time. You come to the altar and lay down your sins and your worries and your burdens. If you're not in Christ, if you've never been saved and brought into God's family today, today would you make that confession of faith? Would you give your life to Jesus this Sunday morning? I'll be here to pray with you. The altars are open for your prayers. Father, we ask that you search us. God, that you lead us. That your spirit would show you our pride, our dissensions, our arrogance, our stubbornness, our sin, our rebellion, our hate. God, that in Christ Jesus, you would cleanse us. We rejoice in our adoption and our sainthood. That you've made us sons and not slaves. That we're restored. We're new creation. We are righteous in your eyes because of the work of Jesus. And today, Lord, we cling to that. I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond to the Lord.